Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Joe Davis, who's the co-founder and CEO of NanoGirl Labs and is also the co-author of a book which is coming out soon, looking at the impact of COVID on businesses and the silver linings which have resulted. In the show notes, there's a whole bunch of links to different things that we talk about, including an event which will be held in Auckland, which is coming up at the end of this month. So make sure you check those out. And don't forget, this is one of almost 250 interviews with Inspiring Kiwis. So you might want to check out some of the others in the back catalog as well. You can do that by looking up Seeds in podcasting apps or going to theseeds.nz. And if you haven't yet subscribed, then why not do so? Now let's get straight into this interview with Joe. All right. So it's a real pleasure to welcome Joe Davis, who's the co-founder of NanoGirl Labs. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation because I think we're going to talk a lot about pivoting and a lot about the impact that COVID has had on all of us, um, both personally and in our businesses, because I know that you've been, you're the co-author of a book that's coming out soon. Um, But before we get into that, I would really love to find out a bit about your background. Um, So if we could jump in a little time machine and take me back, let's go back even to when you were four or five years old. Like sure. really early on, where were you living and what was it like? Uh, so I was uh, born and spent the first 11 years of my life in the south of England. My mum, my dad, my sister, uh, we picked up everything we had in late 1992 and moved to New Zealand. So I, I, was, I was 11 then. We can come to that, but I, I just, I am incredibly grateful for the courage that they had in, in picking up and, and moving us around the world, sight unseen. But to age four or five, yeah, living in the UK, going to school in the UK, uh, having a, a wonderful childhood with no idea what, how, much, how much adventure lay in front. What, what are your memories then? Because that's relatively young to leave a country like that. I'm always curious about identity. Um, you know, when you, when you look back, what are your memories of, of England as a, as a child? Entirely positive. I was blessed with look, I, properly idyllic childhood i you know all of my memories are are of really just good quality happy family time um you know i talk to a lot of entrepreneurs now about sort of those major influences in their life and what one of my favorite questions to ask i learned from a friend um she she thought she said you know when you're interviewing people there's that one the one lesson that one underlying lesson that that kind of your parents will have left you Right, like if you could summarize your entire childhood, all of those learnings in one sentence, what would it be? And I, and you know, when I if I answer that question myself, it's it's, I guess probably twofold. You can do anything you set your mind to, but if you're going to do it, give it your best. The effort matters. Well, that's definitely an applicable lesson for all of life, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Look, it really is. And um, look, I'm incredibly grateful for the childhood that I had and the. Yeah, the platform that, that that builds and the memories that that builds we're still super close as a family i you know value my family enormously in my life today um but also has given me the confidence and the courage to yeah, i guess to believe that maybe we we can change the world a bit yeah so what were some examples of your parents like where did they get that attitude from do you think what had shaped them it's a really interesting question i'd love to be able to ask them on here we should we should we should do a dialogue can i phone a friend phone a friend yeah <laughs> what, what do i think shaped them 
So my mum, um, my mum, you know, had a, a really strong interest in performing arts and literature and the arts in general, and is an amazing storyteller. Uh, also, you know, had a really sound business mind, and so for a lot of her career, she, I mean, she did a lot of early on some amazing performance work, but then was was teaching. Uh, certainly through my childhood, you know, she was a teacher with a, a real specialty in English. She is definitely responsible for my love of Winnie the Pooh uh, and the written word. Not too long, I was still young when when she and my father uh, just founded a company together. So they they were working together. Uh, Dad's a or was a in advertising and commercial photography, like in, incredibly talented businessman, uh, really an incredible artist with his photography and with his creative skills, but also you know, a genuine, has that ability to hustle, um, but in a way that has real integrity behind it and, and is, is as good as his word and delivers more than he says he will every time he does something. And I, I really admire that. Uh, and I think the two of them together made a great team. Uh, and so actually it was, it was that they sort of downsized an agency and moved the business into our home uh, as a sort of, as a result of a recession in the UK in the late eighties. I reckon that was one of the most positive things that I remember in my childhood is, you know, this was obviously from a, it must've been deeply stressful. So they had a, you know, they had an advertising agency, a big photographic studio, clients all over the world, lots of money invested in, you know, early stage computer graphics, really cutting edge stuff for the late eighties. Uh, and the financial situation around the world changed and was such that it, it put them under a lot of pressure. And the decision they made was to move the, essentially to, to downsize the business and to, and to bring a photographic studio into our home. And as kids, we moved house. Uh, our garage in the property was sort of turned into a photographic studio. You know, the business was now running from, from our house and was just my mum and dad. And as a business owner now, I look at that and imagine how stressful that must have been and how that might have felt like like failure at the time. I guess the first thing is that actually, I, from what I understand, the business did better and was more profitable at home than it had been with all of the overheads. But that aside, for me as a child, for me as a, as a young boy, that was just the best thing that could have happened, right? Like we had, I had both of my parents around. I had my dad's, well, my dad's photographic studio, my family business in the home. I got to see that running. I could come home from school and have this amazing quality time helping my dad on his projects and, you know, learning all about sort of marketing and storytelling and, and the static image. It was, uh, yeah, I guess it's a theme. There are silver linings to things, right? The things are what you make them. Yeah. Well, the fascinating thing to me, because we're going to get onto this, is the impact of COVID on business owners needing mm -hmm. to reshape your business. And it, that's really interesting to hear that because it sounds to me like there's an echo of what your parents did 30 something years ago um, in that they did what many of us have done, which is moved the business home and had the children involved. So let's um, pick up on that as we continue talking, because I'm really curious, since you're writing a book about these types of issues today, the fact that you went through the same experience 30 something years ago is, um, yeah, it's really interesting to me. It's now really interesting to me. I, this is the very first time I've thought of it in that light. And uh, actually, I look forward to chatting to them about it because it is. I mean, obviously, they didn't have Zoom, uh, but it was a very, yeah, there's a lot of parallels in that experience. I'm, I'm going to think on that. 
Yeah. Oh, good. Well, that's one of the beauties of the podcast. I love it when um, we talk, I'm talking with a guest and then they're like, oh, you're right. I hadn't thought of that angle. <laughs> so it's really good. So you're getting, say, 10, 11, and then it sounds like your parents decided to move to New Zealand. Is that what happened? Or yeah. talk us through that. Because my, um, my wife's from the UK. Um, so she's from Hartford, just north of London. And um, her mother was a Kiwi, so it's a bit of a different situation, but it's a long way. <laughs> There's no way to deny it. And, and especially back then when you didn't have Zoom, you didn't, you know, you had prepaid phone cards that cost a lot of money. New Zealand is at the far reaches. So what, what happened? How did they end up moving you here? So look, my memory uh, was of a conversation. I sort of just got settled into secondary school in the UK. We were a couple of terms down in, in secondary education. And there was a conversation at home that said, you know, so, hey, kids, we've decided to move to New Zealand. We've never <laughs> been to New Zealand. Uh, I, I had done I think I'd done a school project on, a, on Australia at some point. So I sort of, and obviously Neighbours was big on, on the, the TV back then. Um, and so I, I kind of had this vague idea where New Zealand was, but didn't know anything about it really as a country. Uh, oh, we do the haka, you know, as like little English rugby players pretending we were tough um, with school rugby. But that was about the extent of my knowledge. So there was a lot of uh, apprehension. I remember feeling quite... Yeah, genuinely quite afraid of what that meant and what that would be like as, as a kid. And um, I'm very glad that we followed through with it. It didn't take me long to get over that at all. But uh, in terms of how they made their decision, from the conversations I, we've had since, and you know, I, I'm, I'm about the age now that they were when they were making those choices in their life, right? And that, that brings an interesting perspective. I think that they could see in, in their minds that the sort of the promise of the UK and the, you know, the, the, the future probably wasn't as bright as, as they, they'd hoped with the direction that the UK was heading uh, economically, but politically, socially, to some extent. They had apparently thought about Canada or New Zealand, sort of either or at some different points during their marriage. And then they were coming up, I think, on a, I guess, a, a point at which the immigration system for New Zealand relies on, on points, or certainly did then, I, I haven't been through it since. And I think they were just coming up on the cusp of, you know, a cut over time in terms of age and qualification and so on, where points would drop away for them. And so there was a bit of a need to make a decision now. Uh, and they had just, as a through the agency, had just done a, a project for a company that helped families relocate from the UK to New Zealand. They made this sort of promotional video content for a, I guess, an immigration consultancy. Uh, and that would have involved spending many hours in an edit suite watching this beautiful scenic footage of New Zealand on, on video. And I think that those sort of things collided uh, and made the decision a reality. So they did all of the enormous paperwork and the medicals and all of the things that you had to do. Uh, honestly, my first memory is of sitting on a Singapore Airlines jet, uh, my first long-haul flight as a kid, going to a country we'd never been to. It's amazing. Yeah. When you, as a child, I moved around a lot as a child as well. And, and you do you kind of get on airplanes and you end up in another place and, and you get on. So, so what age were you then? Were you 11, 12? I was 11, 11 coming up 12. Yeah. yeah. And, and how was that coming into a new school and a new place? Was it an easy transition for you or yeah. How did it go? 
I was an English public school boy, stand up when a teacher walks into the classroom, lots of manners, you know, sir and miss and all of those, all of those things, which uh, New Zealand isn't. Um, and, and honestly, my opinion is New Zealand is, is the better for not being, right? It's a beautiful country uh, for that. I think I found the beginnings of the transition, and I guess, a little bit challenging because you definitely that English kid. But overall, just completely fell in love with New Zealand pretty much from day from day two or three, I guess, once the jet lag had worn off. Uh, the freedoms, the sense of safety, the sort of the sense of openness and possibility here, mm-hmm. um, I think really resonated with me right from the beginning. Uh, and still does today. I definitely think of myself as a New Zealander with an accent now. I, I don't feel any sort of heritage or connection to the UK beyond my birth certificate, really. Mm, that's interesting. And so do you think, when did that sort of kick in? Was it um, through teenage years? Did you start to feel like this is home? Or do you think it was just right away getting off the plane? I've talked with people who moved to New Zealand and they they tell me, the moment they got off the plane and stepped onto the ground, they felt like this was special, this was different. Um, so I'm always curious to ask that question. Okay, I think if you look at 11, I'm not sure that I had that understanding of what home meant. You, you know, in the way that you might if you moved as an adult. My, my wife, Michelle, has lived all over the world and, and has, a, I think, probably a different perspective on what that, what that means. And, and she talks about New Zealand feeling special. Uh, I think this was... You know, honestly, home for me was where my family was, and that was that was here. Uh, I probably didn't realize how precious New Zealand is and, and how much the move was the right decision until two or three years later. Yeah. Uh, we, we ended up, look, it's a long story, but we ended up, we did a year here. Um, there was, my mum particularly was really homesick for the UK. We ended up moving, putting everything back in a box and, and going back to the UK. We were there for just on a year, like almost to the day. And the conversation was, so we got that wrong. Who's up for going back to New Zealand? Uh, and we ended up back here. So I spent 94 back in the UK. Um, and I think, honestly, it was that process that, that really anchored uh, two things for me. First, New Zealand as home and New Zealand as a place that I want to call home and, and put down roots. But also a, a really, really genuine comfort and confidence with change, because you, you know it's an unusual opportunity, and it sounds like you may have had something similar in, in your own childhood, right? But it's an unusual opportunity to get the chance to, I don't know about reinvent, but kind of cast off the, the stuff that you tried and it didn't fit when when you were a child, but maybe sort of stays with you if you're with the same group of people. You know, I had opportunity after opportunity to go. I'm keeping that bit, but I'm getting rid of that stuff. Um, and just, yeah, I became super comfortable with, with change and sort of starting afresh. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I'm really curious about that too, but we won't go into the detail of it, but just to be here for a while and then go back and then realize actually we need to go back again. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a process. Yeah. It's a real journey. And I, you know, I was doing that kind of with zero stress, zero paperwork or administration. It's just, hey, new school, like coming back. Do you want to go back to the sunshine and the life that you love? That's a really easy question. I think when I, when I frame that now as a 40-year-old, you know, kind of at the point in life where they, my mum and dad were then, and I think what's it like to do that with two 
you know, two sort of just secondary. Prime, one, I want a kid in primary, my younger sister, me just in secondary education. Uh, with your own parents, obviously, getting older and, and you know, you're leaving them in the UK and going about as far as you can away. Uh, that takes real courage and a real sense of commitment to doing the right thing for your own family's future. Mm. Uh, and I, it probably wasn't until the last 10 years or so that I really grasped a, how big that choice was, but also how grateful I am for, for them having that courage. Yeah. The interesting thing to me is that you went back for that time and then returned. Cause I wonder if you'd just, if you'd come here and stayed here, if maybe England would always have been like this idyllic, you know, that pastoral childhood of green and it was a lovely time. And, and maybe as you grew older, you would have thought, well, maybe I do want to go back, but because you had that extra bit of experience back and then it's almost like a deliberate choice. I choose New Zealand, isn't it? I think that's probably a fair observation. You know, we had the chance to see it through two different lenses uh, and yeah, to, to shed that sort of nostalgia pretty early on. Look, I have great memories of the UK and business now uh, outside of COVID. Uh, see us travel that way a few times each year. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to go back and, and you know, like look, go back and see places that I knew as a child through adult eyes and, and now to do some business up, up in the UK. Yeah. Uh, it always feels uh, familiar, as in, I've, I've, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something that just sort of feels like it fits, like a, like a well-made jacket or something. That's nice, but New Zealand is home. Yeah, no, that's a really good description. I think, because um, I've lived in a number of different countries, but for me, that's New Zealand. I don't have any other place where I feel comfortable, you know, that, that just that innate, I'm here. For me, that's New Zealand. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really, I like the way you put that sort of a comfortable jacket to put on. So you're coming up through your teenage years and you're here in New Zealand. It sounds like the arts were quite important in your family. Um, what other things were occupying you or what did you enjoy doing? So, so much. Um, I think that pretty early on, like I, I, I enjoyed schooling. I enjoyed study and learning. I, I always have. So that was a big part of my life. Um, the usual Kiwi childhood of kind of getting out, exploring and doing things. Um, a, a real love of Auckland's West Coast, you know, like Murawai and, and beaches through there. That, that, that anchors as a big part of a big place that I connected with very early on. Um, in terms of activity, look, I, I started my first business at 14. I always start sort of working for money, I guess, in my own venture at 14. Um, which was pretty soon after we got here on that sort of second return. Um, and also fell into, uh, like through my school uh, involvement, got very connected into producing, like doing the backstage stuff in theater. So lighting and sound um, for, for productions at school. Uh, and that became a big part of my sort of extracurricular hobbies and interests um, as well. And I find it interesting so the, the business of the 14-year-old was, was technology. It was helping people uh, choose and buy and install computers in their homes. That was, that was, that was a great little, little sort of first hustle. Um, and then this interest in theatre. And I kind of looked, you know, all these years later at what we end up doing in a, um, a technology-based business with an interest in live theatre. Uh, I go, okay. <laughs> that started early on. Yeah. 
Nothing is ever wasted in life. That's what I've learned. All. <laughs> when you look back at it, right? It all makes sense when you kind of look backwards down the road and go, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Exactly. So you're getting towards the end of high school. Did you know what was going to happen next? Did you want to start working or study or, yeah, what happened? Uh, so I, I, had, I had a business right through high school. Um, so as I said, started out in, in computer hardware and, and sort of buying it wholesale and on selling and so on. Became web development. Um, and so I taught myself how to code and how to develop websites. I had an interest in design anyway. And so that was pretty comfortable. Um, I started a little company with a friend of mine. We, we would sort of sell websites to different companies and, and IT consulting and things. And that was going really well. But my intention was always to leave high school uh, and read law. Uh, and so I wanted to do a law degree. I, I wanted, to, wanted to go into the law and practice. Um, my school was in Albany, um, up on the North Shore in Auckland. And look, I, I used to kind of step out of school, take the school jacket off, change my tie and go door to door selling in the Albany estate for an hour at the end of the day to, to kind of crank up web business. And just after like three days after my last exam in high school, uh, my phone rang, the mobile phone that I... Nowadays, every kid in high school has got a mobile phone. Uh, back then, it was an unusual thing that um, caused my peers no end of delight. Uh, but my phone rang, and it was someone that I'd sold to sort of three or four months earlier who declined at the time uh, saying, hey, we've got a project for you now. Can you come in? Um, and I was there for a couple of months, and they recommended me to, a, to another client. Uh, I was there for a month. They recommended me to a client. I did a 12-month contract with them. Uh, and just sort of found myself uh, learning on the job rather than rather than going to university. So it had always been my intention. It never happened. I, I fell straight into entrepreneurship. That's a really interesting story, particularly, you know, these days entrepreneurship is, is a, maybe a bit better known, like, you know, have your own startup and things. But if we're going back, say, 20 years, it, even then it probably wasn't as common, I guess, to be in high school and have a, a side hustle or whatever you want to call it. It certainly wasn't common then. Um, in some ways, I wish I'd had the opportunity to learn. Like Murray Tom, always an amazing entrepreneur who I have tremendous respect for personally and professionally, said to me once, look, if, you're gonna, if, you, if your aspiration is to build your own business, practice on someone else's first. Right. Uh, I got that advice quite late. I wish I'd had that. I probably would have liked to have had that opportunity. There's a lot of things that I had to learn kind of just for myself by doing, by making mistakes and so on. Um, but look, overall, it's been an incredible adventure. I wouldn't, I wouldn't swap it. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, there's lots of um, initiatives now for high school students. Like I interviewed Terry Shubkin from Young Enterprise Scheme, and she was telling me about what they're doing and, you know, just the, to be 15 or 16 or 17 and, and trying out, you know, being the CEO of your own little business, it's, there's a lot of skills that you would develop that way. So you're coming up then through your, your 20s, I guess. And, and yeah, what happened next? And maybe lead us up to how you got started and what you're doing today. Yeah. So look, this is, if you look at it on paper, you know, you kind of, you know, when you're doing your LinkedIn profile or you need a CV for something, you try and put things in chronological order that makes sense. Uh, there's some pretty random dots here. So I'll walk through them quickly and by all means pick up on anything you want to chat about, right? Sure. But, uh, I set up a digital agency called Digital Fishbowl with uh, a co-founder and, and still to this day, a dear, dear friend. Um, and we 
No, we were incredibly privileged. We worked on some some amazing digital products, sort of before uh, smartphones were, and sort of apps were were an ecosystem thing. Like we we were early stage web application developers uh, on market research on the internet. We, we had a whole lot of different products and had an agency that did did really well. And um, we never grew it particularly, but we were very much sort of bespoke work on high-end web projects and around that for, for a number of years. Um, I, somewhere in that journey, fell a, a little bit out of love with being on the tools with technology like and came to see computers uh, as being fascinating for what you could do to improve people's lives rather than just inherently, you know, fascinating me as a device and just by being as, as they had to that point. And I was really keen to... I really wanted to learn how to lead people. Um, so when I was 20 or 20, 21, I think, 21, um, somewhere in there, I got involved as a volunteer with the Royal New Zealand Coast Guard um, in sea rescue. So I, I'm walking through the, the town where I was living at the time in Browns Bay. Uh, I, they had a rescue boat on display on a trailer and I stopped to have a look because who doesn't stop to look at a dried orange boat with big engines on the back? And the guy there, Brett, um, said to me, hey, man, do you like fast boats? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I hadn't been on many, but I liked the idea of them. Uh, and he said, well, do you like helping people? And I said, yeah, absolutely, I do. And he said, well, show up. He gave me an address and said, show up here at Wednesday night, 7.30. Uh, we'll get you involved and, and, come and come and join your local Coast Guard unit. And that's 20 years this year. Um, and really, look, I, is absolutely one of the best decisions I ever made. Like, it's been, it's been an incredible journey. Uh, it's featured in my, I guess, my professional career, uh, and it's been one of the deep loves of my adult life. Um, I have learned so much from that involvement. I have had so much more out of my volunteering than I've put in, um, and I've put in a lot. Uh, so it's been a really high-value thing for me. It's been a wonderful joy. And what um, was the thing, I'm just really curious, since it's had such an impact, you know, what was it about what he said that made you think you would go and you would show up? I know, like, Brett, as a human being, just had this tremendously infectious energy mm -hmm. uh, and, and was clearly so passionate in himself that it was infectious uh, and, and got me in and got me fired up. And then I sort of you know, ran from there myself. Um, it's been a, yeah, um, what, what, what were the things that it's meant to me? I think early on, like I came to, Coast Guard volunteering as a, a, a young, young guy, like a you know, 20 year old guy who um, left high school into a probably earning too much money for someone who's just left high school, um, you know, to the point where if I had listened to my mum and bought a house when she, when she told me I should, uh, I would have been in a financially a wonderful position through my 20s. I didn't, I spent it on all of the wrong things as, as like, anyway, it was a good adventure. I came into Coast Guard and was suddenly surrounded by a whole lot of people of different walks of life, older, younger, different fields. Uh, they were doing things that were real, where my career was very much virtual. Yeah, it was all ones and zeros and abstract. And suddenly this was, uh, we go out on the water and we save lives. And so there was that clarity of purpose. Uh, and some people who were in different places in their life, and when they saw me doing stuff that was um, a bit daft, if I'm honest, called me on that and showed me that there were other ways and, you know, some different choices that I could be making. Um, and that really defined who I was. I also got exposed to leadership opportunities um, and, and, you know, responsibilities earlier than I would have done otherwise in my career. 
Yeah, the thing I pick up on there is the community, you know, that there was a cohort of people around you who cared about you, who spoke into your life and called you to something greater or bigger than, than you would have been otherwise. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Uh, look, I think we'll, we can talk a bit later, but you see community echoing as a theme right through to, to present day. Um, so I guess to finish that narrative, I'm running this web agency, have started volunteering with the Coast Guard really wanted to kind of hone my ability to lead uh, people and organizations. Co-founded with some friends, an organization called the National Youth Theater, uh, which is a nonprofit dedicated to um, giving life skills and experiences to young people using the dramatic arts, the performing arts as a vehicle. Um, so grew that over several years as a sort of side hustle um, as, as CEO for that organization. It's a lofty title for a small, what was a small nonprofit, but it's still, I'm proud to say that it's still running today, uh, obviously with new hands running it, but uh, I mean, it is a wonderful organization in great, in great hands. I then, uh, I was given the opportunity to, to join the Coast Guard professionally as, a, as an interim change leader, chief executive. So there was a, a restructure underway. Uh, I'd actually instigated the restructure as chairman of the board for the organization the uh, incumbent chief executive that had stepped away to pursue another opportunity in the middle of that restructure and the board invited me to essentially take up the reins in that office on a, on a contract basis uh, for what ended up being 18 months um, to kind of finish that change off. Um, and so that was really the point at which I stepped away from kind of that, you know, my own business for a while and had the opportunity to lead something of a, of a different scale and I mean, it was a lot of government relations work, a significant piece of change. Um, yeah, really interesting and challenging organization. You know, it's two and a half thousand or so um, stakeholders in, in the organization. I think um, I, I remain a, a, a passionate volunteer for the Coast Guard. I, I still contribute in that way, but that was a, you know, I reckon we got about 80% of what we did in that, of what I did over those 18 months bang on and 20% sort of super wrong. But luckily the next people that came in we're really good at the other 20%, um, and most of the 80% have, have stuck. Um, you know, what a great privilege to serve an amazing, you know, amazing organization professionally for a period of time, and, and look really proud of that, but also really grateful for the, the opportunity and the faith and um, for the people that you know, I got the chance to work with to try and leave the organization a bit better than I found it. Yeah, oh, that's really good. Well, in the show notes, we can put links to different things, so why don't we... Remind me later, we'll put some links to some of these things we're talking about because people listening may be curious to find out more about the youth theater or about Coast Guard. And I mean, New Zealand's such an amazing country, isn't it? Because it's two big islands. It's a lot of ocean. <laughs> a lot of coastline, right? It's yeah, exactly. Um, and we're, we're a nation of seagulls. And you know, the day that we, we can go through a year without a single boaty uh, losing their lives at sea, um, what will be the day that Coast Guard's job is is in hand? Like it's a it's a really it's a really special thing. Um, so I left the Coast Guard role uh, and started a consulting practice. Um, so helping, I wanted to get back into uh, kind of a commercial space, uh, get back into into you know, sort of prop, an environment where you could talk about profitability and, and grow sustained business. That's um, sort of out of the nonprofit space. Uh, so I built a consultancy practice. Um, was really lucky to meet a, a, a team called Automotivators. They're a, a, a kind of a sales training come customer experience consultancy firm um, out of uh, Canada. 
specializing in the automotive and financial services sector. Um, so I began representing their business um, in, in New Zealand and, and more widely across Asia Pac. Um, and having some, you know, building my own book of consulting clients, mostly around innovation and business growth uh, and, and sort of strategic work, um, lots of change projects, things like that commercially. Um, and whilst I was doing that, honestly, I was uh, pretty interested in pursuing a career in politics. Um, I, I sort of started getting quite involved in, in party politics in New Zealand and started heading in that direction. Um, all of that was going on when I met my, my now wife and co-founder of my current venture, Michelle. Um, we made some choices. Um, I am just, we had a complete change of direction, which has brought me no end of happiness. Uh, and we created our, our company today, Nanogill Labs, five years ago now. Um, and that's a wild ride. Yeah. So when you uh, when did you first meet her then? Because it sounds like that's been quite an intersection point for your life to do some different things. Uh, so I met Michelle. Michelle had set up a, a charity um, at the time, helping young people, like sort of young people get interested in, in in technology, particularly STEM more broadly. A friend of mine who was renting a room in my property from me for a while was working with that charity, helping to get it set up and said, look, I, Joe, I've started work with this, this nonprofit. It works with kids. I'm, can you, I'd obviously done the work with the theater, which is a, a youth charity. Do you mind coming out for a day and having a look at what we're doing? Um, maybe giving us some advice around what you think next steps might look like. Just, just help me out, do me a favor. Yeah. Uh, of course I said, yes, went out to have a look. Um, Michelle was, uh, Michelle was doing an exercise with kids running up and down outside and getting them to measure their pulses they did, right? Like teaching them about the heart and, and how that works. Um, and one thing, so we, we obviously connected, one thing led to another. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, look, that's where we met. I don't know if she want me to tell you the next bit or not. I'm going to, and we can always agree to edit it out later. Uh, so that night I'm sitting back at home with, with another flatmate and dear friend, Andy. And I said, Andy, Mate, today I, I met the girl I want to marry. Um, and it, we were, it was great. We thought that was brilliant. We were having whiskey um, and, and chatting about it when suddenly on, on social media, boom, Michelle Dickinson has added you as a friend, right? And I'm like, hey, look at this. I think <laughs> we talked for about probably two or three minutes and then she just completely disappeared, right? Like just ghosted, nothing at all, no response at all. And so I thought, oh, okay, well, it wasn't to be. Well, six months later, um, through the same channels, I ended up running a, a workshop for the, the charities board, just looking for sort of next phase in terms of strategy and development and where they should take that organization, um, reconnect her with Michelle. Um, and I'm pleased to say that, you know, ultimately I was right. I met the girl I was going to marry in the future and, and life is wonderful. Um, I did ask at one point, so those six months, you know, what, what happened, what happened there? Um, I think that look, when you are very much involved in party politics um, and are aspiring in, you know, to, 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 you know, to make that a part of your, your career, and, and look, I, I hope someday to return to that, uh, your social media presence can look particularly uh, uh, one color, right? <laughs> you, know, you paint a sort of very definitively, you know, this is what I'm about and this is, this is who I am. Um, 
And I think, to be honest, it just all looked a little bit, um, a little bit one-sided uh, to Michelle. And she thought, oh, no, that doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like me at all. Um, luckily, I've been able to talk around. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's the danger of social media, isn't it? You, um, you, you sometimes you there's a persona, but it's actually very different to the actual person in in behind the, the um, the image. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, um, my father tells the story that the the day he met my mother, he called his mother, so my grandmother, and said, "I've met the woman that I'm going to marry." Um, it took him two years to then convince her that that was accurate, but, <laughs> but he had a similar experience to what you described there. Yeah. And so um, just talk us through then that decision, I guess, to move into STEM education. It's a really fascinating area to me because I've got four young children and I think it's such an important thing that as parents, as caregivers, as anyone, you know, helping people to come up and be encouraged to get into these areas. Three of my four are, are girls, you know, just, so just opening up opportunities for them as well, that it isn't some, you know, obscure thing that, that you wouldn't even think of getting into. Um, yeah, but just talk us through maybe the, the, the thinking around, right, we're going to set something up, we're going to do this. So look, when we met, Michelle was a, an academic at the University of Auckland in their Faculty of Engineering um, and was already giving a huge amount of her time in, in outreach work. So she would go out to schools uh, and encourage particularly girls, but children in general, to continue, uh, sorry, to consider um, engineering her field or, or, or sort of STEM generally as a, as a career choice. And she would give a talk that talked about how... Uh, in fact, she did a, a TED talk on a similar theme, which you, you can see online. Um, but essentially, she would talk about how discovering science and tech and engineering had given her superhero, superhero powers. So she'd always wanted to be a superhero as a young girl, and this is how she'd acquired those powers. And she'd sort of built this persona called Nano Girl for herself. And, and that was going strong, you know, good, like quite active on media, like doing, like really engaging the public in a conversation about science and having a, an amazing influence on, on kids. Um, also consistently, like the, the number one rated lecturer by students. So Adam, still to this day, we, you know, we're a few years since Michelle left academia, but we still meet people who, are, who, who will stop Michelle on the street and be like, you're the most amazing teacher I ever had. I think that we were talking about direction and life and ambition and all of those things and actually the whole nano girl venture kind of started as a side hustle i thought if we could wrap a commercial model around the idea that she created and find a way to scale it um, what was obviously a really positive impact could be scaled beyond kind of a a one to a few model to being a um, you know, initially a nationwide venture that could make a real difference. But long term, I could see the potential for, you know, enterprise level business and real scale on that. And I don't think we really knew what it looked like, but we decided um, we kind of get a logo done for Nano Girl and start to brand that as a character and as an IP. Um, and maybe like when Michelle was doing shows and things that were ticketed, maybe we'd put that logo on some stuff and merchandise it and, you know, just see if we couldn't you know, at least put a little bit of money into a bank account to support her in doing this kind of side hustle, amazing outreach thing that 
it wasn't a money earner for her at all. At the time, that wasn't what it was about. It was it was always about the difference that she was able to make and, and the impact. We we ended up touring, like creating and touring a nano girl theatre show. We we sort of the merch stuff had gone pretty well. We had this logo, people had enjoyed the shows, and we said, well, what if we what if we took that on the road? You know, like what if we I know a bit about making theatre. What if we kind of put that in a truck and toured it around New Zealand? Um, and so we did that. And I, I mean, crazy. The, when I look at how many staff it now takes to run a project like that in our business, and I think that was kind of like me as a side hustle, sort of for a couple of hours in the afternoon and in the evening on a desk in a shared office, um, kind of trying to make this thing happen. We did this tour and it went, it went really well. Like it was a, it was a, it was a huge success um, and left us with, you know, with, with some return on the, you know, we, we obviously put up quite a bit of our own money to make that happen and took a risk to make that happen. Um, but we got a reasonable return on that and we ended up with some funds in the bank and thinking, well, what do we do with that? Like, do we do that again next year and just kind of keep doing what we're doing or, or is there a business here? On our second date, I think, maybe, maybe date number three, Michelle had shared with me an idea that she'd had for years to create a, essentially a recipe book that like, you could follow everything along, just like a recipe book, but each of those recipes would be a science experiment. And publishers kind of hadn't bought into it. Um, and it was just this idea that she had rolling around in the back of her head. And so after a bit of a yarn, we decided to take the money we've made from the tour and invest that in getting someone to help us um, and trying to create, that we would make that book our next sort of project, that we would try and make that idea a reality. Um, and we ended up writing and fully self-publishing um, what's gone on to be a, a bestseller and has been acquired by Penguin um, Random House and out of London and out of New York and is all over the world now um, and has two seasons of a TV show made, but it, it, it's called The Kitchen Science Cookbook. Uh, and, and so... Um, the, the Kitchen Science Cookbook in its self-published form like, was designed by friends that I've done some consulting work with in, in their agency, um, was photographed by my dad um, in, in, at our family home. That um, was sort of talent where a lot, lot of family friends that we, we brought in to be talent in the book. Um, like it was a real homegrown production that, that again, did, did beautifully. Uh, Murray, uh, Murray Tom, who I mentioned earlier, he's done some just some publishing projects and music projects over the years and we were lucky enough that he, he gave us the benefit of his wisdom and experience and mentored the project a bit um, which was a huge help oh, yeah, the thing just flew and I guess from there you know, see the, sort of the snowball starts to build pace uh, and now we have a um, an online digital learning platform and, and you know, last year reached 140,000 young people around the world in 127 countries with our, with our sort of crazy mix of education and tech and um, entertainment. So, yeah, but it all started as a side hustle, really. Yeah, it's interesting. I always like to ask about those origin stories because the people listening, some of them will have dreams or ideas like that. And sometimes it is just verbalizing it, you know, like like Michelle did with you. And and then like, well, how do we make this happen? And And having a side hustle that then opens up and it becomes it sounds like for you, it's become quite a big part of you, you know? So yeah, it's, that's a really interesting to hear. And I guess the thing for the listeners is what would that be for them? What if they got sitting in the back of their mind that they've never quite been able to 
go, yes, I'm going to give it a go and try. Um, just before we talk a little bit more about what you're doing today, because I'm really curious about the book, which is coming out soon. Um, I did Google your name and something came out about how you'd gotten married in one day. Is that right? And can you tell yeah. us that story? <laughs> we just had our three year anniversary like a week ago. So yeah, we, we were 11 hours from, from will you to I do. Uh, I guess we are, uh, Michelle and I are move fast and break things people. Um, it was a Monday morning um, in February three years ago. We had, uh, so Michelle's mum lives in the UK. At the time, um, her brother and sister-in-law were based out of Shanghai in China. Her best friend was living in Seattle. Um, and they all happened to be in New Zealand on this given Monday. We'd been at the wedding of some really just dear, dear friends um, over that weekend. Uh, and I guess that was an inspiration to us. Uh, and so I, we woke up on Monday morning at like, I guess it was probably about 7, 7.30 in the morning. I said, hey, Shell, like, we should get married today. Everyone that we would possibly want, you know, all of your family are here. Those stars don't align too often. Um, we should get married. And Michelle said, I think maybe not, not convinced that I would do it, said, well, look, if you can organize it, I'll be there. <laughs> uh, and I took that, that was a pretty good challenge. So uh, yeah, we made it happen. Um, we had the most beautiful wedding at the Northern Club uh, in Auckland that night. Uh, we were able to fly. Michelle has family in New Zealand, so we were able to fly them in to, to be a part of the, the ceremony. Um, obviously, we had, you know, my family was there. A lot of our dear friends got a, a pretty shocking phone call mid-afternoon saying, so, do you want to come into town? Um, yeah, it was an amazing day, a genuinely wonderful day. And um, yeah, it's, honestly, it's been, a, it's been a wonderful three years since. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I think many of us, you know, we, we set the date. There's months and months of planning. There's a lot of back and forth and cake and food and all the things that you have to get organized that sounds like you were able to compress it and just um, get on with it quickly. <laughs> we know something about making large events happen, right? We tour outside of COVID all over the world and regularly yeah. around New Zealand. Um, we just didn't want that wasn't right for us. But the, the lesson for me is, is it's not that, you know, short and fast is, is better or anything. It's, it's, I think that, you know, those things are deeply personal and you should do what's right for you. Um, and the wedding we've been at over the weekend was meticulously and beautifully planned, which is exactly what you'd expect from, you know, it was perfect for, for the couple that, that we shared the wedding with. Um, it, was, it was them through and through, it was just it was just a delight. Everything had been thought through. Um, I guess this was us, you know, this yeah. was what we wanted and this this was our way of doing things. Um, and it was, look, the, the, the downside, if, the, if there is one, is that when you're moving that quickly, you know, there are people who would have loved to have been there and, and we would have loved to have shared the day with that, you know, the reality is when you're moving that quickly, the guest list is kind of giving my phone to the team and saying, right. look, <laughs> Here are some must-haves that we both that are, you know we both spent a lot of time with in the last few months. Here's the family names, and then just ring the recently called list until you get a room right. call. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you know, the deep it's time. happening in two hours. Be there <laughs> or don't be there. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so, great. That was magic. Well, well, let's, well, let's shift the conversation a little bit because I'm really curious about this book, which is coming out. Um, and I'd love to find a little bit more about that. I understand, given your context, and in a way, the context of 30 years ago with your parents, 
um, you know, the transformation that you had to go through um, was, was drastic, wasn't it? Because of COVID, you know, everything got locked down. Um, I, I'm guessing that that then gave you an understanding of what other people were going through as well. But could you just talk us through like, um, because in the, in the show notes, we'll put a link. You, you've done a really nice article on some of the impacts, the immediate ones. Um, so I've read that and I'll, I'll put a link to that in there, but maybe just describe for the people listening, what was the biggest impact on your business and then kind of guide us into how did the book come about? <laughs> for, for the sake of context, at the front of COVID, so at the top of 2020, we had a you know, business that had uh, revenue streams in, in publishing and licensing. Uh, we had cons consulting projects on the go. We have some great relationships with uh, large organizations, defense organizations, helping them improve diversity and so on in, in STEM uh, participation. But, you know, with, with 80 odd percent of our revenue in the live eventing space. And we've sort of really doubled down on that. We had a product that was working beautifully for us, uh, had the added benefit that we love to travel. Um, and so we had, a, we had tours lined up uh, in Edinburgh, um, then around the south of the UK, then across, I think, to the States, then in um, sort of the UAE, uh, back down through China, across to Australia for a tour, and then finishing in New Zealand with a, with a tour at year end. And so all in, that was like a $2.5 million book of work that was lined up. It was a good solid year. Uh, we were going to take our live stuff, and we were going to take that to the world, and it was uh, exciting. In the three or four days before lockdown, literally all of that vanished. Everything was canceled, postponed, pushed out. It's not happening. Um, Two and a half million dollars disappeared. And I, Michelle and I went, were sitting at home. We were having dinner together and we said, well, you know, this, is, this is suboptimal. What are we going to, what, what do we do? Like that? And I think the, the choice was pretty stark. It was either sort of dramatically reduce our overheads, just kill cost in the business, contract and live on our savings and try and sort of hunker down and weather the storm on a, on a storm jib, or we could try and do something bold. Uh, and neither Michelle or I are, are wired for timid. We're, we're both sort of screw it, let's do it people. Uh, and we came up with an idea and we, so the next morning we rocked into the office with our team. We were at uh, three days before the levels, the lockdown was, came into effect at this point. And we wrote up on our whiteboard, uh, a nano girl science adventure every day through lockdown for just a dollar a day. And our team got on board with that. There were four of us in the, like Michelle and I plus four uh, in the business. Um, that grew to 15 over the weeks ahead. Um, that idea became a digital platform called Nano Girls Lab, which is online today. It had looked huge success, thousands and thousands of kids that used that as you know, their lockdown, part of their lockdown learning and entertainment. And through that and producing a TV show over that time for the learning network, we were able to reach more than 140,000 um, with science learning through the course of lockdown and, and the months since. We partnered in ways we've never partnered before and were able to come up with really cool ways to, to bridge the digital divide and make sure that that STEM learning was getting to kids who just don't have access to the internet or a computer or anything of the sort. It was exhausting, but it was just the most, it was such an exhilarating time. It was a really remarkable adventure. Every morning through that, our, obviously we're all working remote. Uh, Michelle and I had moved into our office. We were living in the office. We built a studio there so we could shoot all this stuff. 
then obviously we needed to be able to access that. So to keep the bubble thing legal, we moved into the office and set up a flat. But every, every day we'd meet kind of this big kind of all hands call at nine o'clock every morning. And at nine o'clock every morning, it was someone's job on a roster to share something they'd learned since their last sharing. And our social media manager said, uh, guys, it's not something I've learned. I just have to share this news with you. This morning, last day of lockdown, my dad um, proposed to his partner. They'd always said they never wanted to get married. They'd both been married before. They didn't want to do that again. They locked down together in this little cottage on Waiheke Island. And on the, like this morning, my dad got down on one knee and said, look, I never want life to be any different than this has been. Will you marry me? And I said, obviously, we're all celebrating. It's wonderful. It's this real joyous thing. We know that we're coming out of level four the next day. And I said, man, that's wonderful. There have to be so many good news stories that have come out of lockdown. Like we hear all of the, all of the hardship and the difficulty, but there are these stories of humanity and resilience and agility that have emerged. I said, someone should write a book about that. And I said, you know what you call it? You call it silver linings of the long white cloud. If anyone's going to do it, they can have the title for free. There you go. I was just riffing, you know, uh, being obnoxious, I think, actually, on reflection. Anyway, I, we realized at the end of the call that, you know, if someone, we are someone, right? I am someone. If it ought to be done, well, then let's do it. I called my good mate, David Downs. David had co-written a book with, with Michelle previously called Number Eight Recharged. It was, a, it was a real success and a similar format to what I had in my head. Um, he was in. He's always, always loves a good idea. Called Penguin and sort of pitched the idea to them. And by the end of the day, I had a co-author who had written a book before, which was very, very helpful, um, and a publishing deal with, with Penguin. So we set about finding and capturing and writing uh, amazing stories from communities and businesses that had been successful uh, in some way through the COVID-19 level four lockdown period. That's really fascinating. I love it. And I love the, um, you know, it's just such a personal story as well, because you represent what you're talking about. It's not sort of a academic, ethereal, oh, somebody was affected and let's talk to them. It's actually, no, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this was a, a daily stress at the beginning. And, and that the amazing thing just in your particular situation is just to think about the scaling, you know, the scalability that the internet brings and, and holding things online and things. And I mean, I remember seeing something with Michelle and with um, the prime minister talking about COVID, you know, like the, the ability, the reach that you get through using social media and using the internet is is incredible really when you compare it to purely we're here in the room and and there's you know a hundred people as opposed to there's potentially a hundred thousand people watching this thing so yeah it's been a real joy and, and what we found pretty quickly is that um yes look it's really important to me in talking about the good news stories and the silver linings of all this, not to in any way diminish or take away from the hardship and the suffering and the genuine difficulties that people face. But I think it's equally important to recognize that you know, not everything's broken. And actually, there are some things there that I think if we can, if we can learn from the experiences of these, these organizations and these people that did well and you know, really, really made a dent with what they did, Actually, I'm profoundly optimistic for New Zealand's future. There's an opportunity here. And I think that the book and, and now the live event that's going with that book, are, are, yeah, I, look, I, I think that, the, yes, they mark a moment in, the, in time. Yes, they are 
some great yarns and some great stories that are just fun to read. But also there are some, some pretty important underlying lessons in there too that I, I think business leaders will benefit from. Yeah, well, I think that term, it got overused a little bit, but the term pivoting, you know, and, and being able to look at your business and then think about how you could do things differently. My own personal example of that is I was planning to do an unconference based here in Christchurch, and we were going to have about 300 people coming together. You know, we had the venue sorted, we had the food, we had all, it was all happening. And it was going to happen in early May. So you know what happened. <laughs> we had to look at each other and go, well, this isn't going to go. So we ended up going entirely virtual and did an unconference that was all online. So we had 350 people, um, six different Zoom rooms, all running at the same time, 38 different sessions. And it was amazing. But it just shows there was that point in the road, I guess, where it could have been, well, that didn't work. And we'll try it when we can meet again. Or we've got to innovate, we've got to do something that we frankly are scared of because how many people can fit in a Zoom room? I have no idea. What right. license do we need to do that? You know, all the technical stuff, but um, it just shows it is possible, I guess, to, to do things a bit differently. And there are stories of that in every sector, almost every sector, I think that you can imagine, right? There are stories of, um, you know, architectural firms who helped produce PPE and then found new ways to work using technology. That there are all these stories of kind of new, incredible new and you would have said previously very unlikely partnerships forming um, because, you know, in the vacuum that was created by that uncertainty and the fear around COVID, actually there was a real desire that has try some things. Um, you know, the world was already everything was sort of already out of the window you there was a it sort of tore some things open but yeah look if you were if it was your relationship with an existing client or supplier that was that was impacted by that man that would that would be that would hurt but it, it left niches and new scenes that, that sort of innovative and entrepreneurial companies could really if you could pick up the phone to anybody and try something right and, and so um there are examples all over the place people that uh, you know, tripling a workforce, 400 to 1,200 people in a matter of days by partnering with, for instance, the travel sector that was suddenly out of work um, and not able to do anything uh, and being able to bring those people into work on Healthline. Um, but just fascinating stories of, of kind of creative, out-of-the-box thinking. Yeah, no, that's really good. So just reflecting on the book now that it's coming up to, you know, being released and things, were there any, I guess, key themes that, that really stuck out to you that um, the listeners would be interested in? Yeah, look, I think one of the, the, fundamental, the fundamental sort of things that I see, see looking through the book is this, I think, that the, I think that COVID around the world has given a real opportunity for us to question whether we've aligned value with our values. So you know, the things that we assign financial value to or have thought important, um, do they align with our values and to question what is really essential? Because actually when the chips were down, I think that the role of uh, our teachers, our frontline health workers, uh, our scientists and researchers and engineers were suddenly right at the fore in terms of what we needed and what we counted on and where we looked for. You know, those were the things that I think were genuinely essential 
And I'm not sure that if you'd asked many of us going into the crisis, like, where is value in our society? Like, what is essential to you? I'm not sure that we would have answered those things. My challenge, I think, to business owners coming out of this is it is entirely too easy for us to go back to the old normal. And I think that as business leaders, um, as decision makers, as politicians, um, our challenge is to really examine uh, the lessons that we learned through that really profoundly challenging time to find the silver linings and to hang on to those and to be really conscious and proactive in, in choosing to hang on to those uh, and forge a new normal um, rather than falling back into, into where we've been before. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And I think that's the, that's the challenge, isn't it? Because the people did question the old ways of doing things. And now we're faced with that fork in the road a little bit like the circumstances you've described in your own life. You know, do we go back or do we chart a new, a new way forward? I'm often talking these days about um, like the regenerative economy instead of the extractive economy, you know, and talking about paradigm shifts of thinking from the old ways into the new ways. And whether you use the word social enterprise or impact or whatever, you know, thinking about business in a way that actually we need to be really aware of much more than profit. It's a, it's a holistic view of the world, ourselves as individuals and our businesses and our place within that you know, framework. So yeah, it's gonna be fascinating to see what happens. The other thing that's encouraging to me, and I don't know if you're finding this in your conversations, is it has, it does seem to have unlocked in people this desire to, you know, I've had this dream, I've wanted to do something, I, I might as well get on with it, I might as well do it. So I, I work as a lawyer, and I've had lots of people coming in saying, I've had this idea for a startup, it's finally time to do it, because life is short. And that's been heightened, you know, this, the sense of danger from COVID is kind of heightened, I might as well get on with it. And uh, so that's quite an encouraging sign as well, I think. I, I think it absolutely is. I think it's always important. You know, entrepreneurship is, is hard. Like it's a great ride, but it's, it's challenging. And, and look, more things fail than succeed by a considerable margin. And I think it's important that we're analyzing ideas critically, um, that we're looking for enduring value at, at, from the ideas that we have. Um, not that you'll necessarily understand what that looks like when you first step out. What we do today started as a side hustle. Um, we did not have it. There wasn't a grand strategy that it would grow into what we have now. But along the journey, we were always asking those questions and looking, do, can we imagine that being in the future? Um, and if not, you know, we would, have, we would have wound it up and gone in a different direction. Mm. Um, I also think it's, it's incumbent on us to look for, for ideas that can make a difference at scale. You know, one of the real advantages for New Zealand that's emerged in the last 12 months has been, uh, you know, a far, far greater acceptance of um, transacting and doing business um, at a distance. If I look back, so this time, this time a year ago, we were in the US, we were opening offices for the company in Santa Barbara. Um, we were beginning to raise VC for um, I guess essentially what became our lockdown project, obviously done for a lot less money and very, very quickly, but for a digital learning platform. And look, people just wouldn't take meetings or, or even reply to an email really from a distance. It was, it was when you, as Kiwis, it was when you were in town and said, hey, look, I'm in San Francisco or 
three days. Um, just arrived in from New Zealand. I would love to make to meet you and have that coffee I've been emailing about. Um, and suddenly you get a reply. You know, people are comfortable now. We've all worked from home and networks are bigger. There is not that sort of tyranny of distance, um, at, at least in at least in fields where where data driven or value you know, intellectual driven fields, creative fields that there has been. I think we need to be thinking about those business that those sectors and businesses in those spaces that can can reach global scale um, and take advantage of the fact that the distances technology got rid of that distance years ago, frankly, like, but psychologically it was still there. What we've seen is a real change in the way people think about and appreciate it. And, and, and that matters. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's going to be fascinating to watch in the coming years, I think, because New Zealand does have a lot of attraction as a place. And now people are realizing they could be here working from here rather than, in Europe or North America or wherever they are right now. I'm doing a bit of work with some people in the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, and there's a lot of entrepreneurs, investors overseas who would love to come and are planning to come actually and relocate their businesses and things. So yeah, let's watch this space. Now, normally in my interviews, they are um, not time specific because they are recorded so that they will last for decades to come and one day Anyone could listen to this interview and, and get value because it's not time specific. But in your case, you do have a book coming out. So give us a little info on that because we're recording this on the 4th of March. And we'll probably release this in a couple of days. And also the event that's coming up and just how people can get involved and where they can find the book. Sure. So the book called Silver Linings by, by myself, Joe Davis and David Downs is uh, with Penguin Random House. And it'll be available everywhere books are sold uh, or good books are sold uh, later uh, early next week but, it, but it'll hit shelves um, and that book contains 80 stories just a little over 80 stories of businesses that have um, pivoted changed direction found new ways to create value and succeeded during covid it also has some really wonderful kind of community and personal stories uh, that, that were just as important those real sort of human aspects of our covid lockdown journey are in there Look, I think, though, what we realized that, you know, when you interview that many people for the book, there are the things that they tell you that you can print and that go on, on the page. And then there are those real insights and secrets into the way that they approach business and the, the sort of the secret source that allowed them to make those, those changes, whether they were running sort of SMEs or, or kind of running divisions of corporates. And so David and I decided to host a live event, Silver Linings Live, um, on March 26th, exactly one year on from our first day living under level four uh, last year, where we've invited some of our, our the favorite stories from the book to come and share their stories live with a, a business audience. Um, and so you can buy tickets to that at silverlinings.nz. Um, it's going to, I think, a really profound and insightful day uh, and if you're interested in what enables business to be resilient, what it means to align business around values and impact, what, what it takes to succeed in the new normal, uh, I wouldn't miss it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, what we'll do is drop some links in the show notes. So there's going to be quite a few if people want to make their way through and find that. Um, it'll make it easy for them to, to click through. But um, Joe, I just want to say thank you for your time. Um, it's been really interesting hearing your story. To be honest, what really stuck out to me was your parents and the fact that they went through, you know, a situation where they brought their business, brought it home, and that actually 
possibly that was then a mirror or an echo that you could refer back to, even if it was subconsciously, that, you know, this is something that you can do. You can, you can change the way you do business. But just hearing about your life journey and the, you know, the things that you've gotten involved in, there's been a number of them. Um, but I loved hearing about NanoGirl Labs and, and just the, um, the energy that you clearly have and the passion that you've got for that as a way to reach young people and teach them about STEM. Um, but then how you did um, switch over from being in-person to moving to online. It's been really interesting. So we'll drop some links in the show notes, but thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed our chat. Likewise, thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for giving me plenty to think about. I hadn't thought about those echoes either. And uh, I certainly shall now. There's a, there's a cup of tea and some deep thinking in my future. There you go. You can have a conversation with your parents and <laughs> have some <laughs> chats. <laughs> Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Joe. I know for me, there were several things that stood out and I really love it in interviews when I'm talking with someone and then they go, oh, I hadn't really thought of that before. So that was a fun part of this interview when we were listening to him talk about his parents and their experience about 30 years ago. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog because there's about 250 there. And make sure to check out the links in the show notes to the things that we talked about. And at the time of releasing this in early March 2021, there's still a chance to get a ticket to the event that he described. So make sure to check out that. And look out for the book as well. Until next time! Mm -hmm.